Welcome to the Pro Aging Podcast. I'm Steve Gurney, founder of the Positive Aging Community. We're excited that you can join us for our interactive discussions with pioneers and thought leaders on a wide variety of topics related to aging and longevity. We're able to bring these discussions to you along with copies of the Positive Aging Sourcebook, thanks to the support of our Positive Aging Community Champions. Visit ProAging.com to connect with them and find hundreds of other resources. So what would a more perfect healthcare delivery system look like for older adults? Howard Gleckman, an Urban Institute fellow, journalist and author of Caring for Our Parents, talks about where seniors will get care, who pays for it, how to plan for care an elder may need, and the importance of family communication. Had some good uh, audience comments on this discussion, so let's jump into the discussion with Howard. let our streaming friends in. Okay, there we go. Okay, well, welcome everybody. Uh, I'm uh, TGI Friday and I am um, really delighted about today's discussion, especially because I'm partnering with uh, Reston for a Lifetime, which is an agent place village and a member of the National Village to Village Network. My co-host today is Scott Parkin. And uh, Scott, uh, welcome. And uh, I can uh, pull up your slide deck there and uh, share this for you to provide some introductions here. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to the uh, second in Reston for a Lifetime's 2023 uh, webinar series. And we produce that in partnership with Steve and the Positive Aging Community. Um, I'm going to say just a little about us and then introduce today's speaker. Um, Reston for a Lifetime seeks to, to help older adults in our community age in place. For us, it's about neighbors helping neighbors stay independent as long as possible. And as Steve said, we are part of the nationwide village movement. Next slide, please. And to fill, fulfill our mission, we have a website that lists hundreds of area resources, mostly government and nonprofit, a free monthly newsletter, and both online and in-person educational events. Um, please visit restinforalifetime.org to uh, find out uh, how to get the newsletter and to, to learn more about us. Next slide, please. We have two more webinars this year, um, and we call the whole thing Planning to Live for a Lifetime. But anyway, in, se in, se in September, uh, we have The Awesome Power of Growing Stronger Together, which is based on a new book by Dr. William Thomas, uh, who is a visionary in long-term care. Um, and I know he's spoken at some of Steve's webinars in the past, but it should be quite exciting. And in November, we have uh, Caring for the Caregiver uh, with Gary Barg, who is a publisher of uh, Caregiver Magazine and, and uh, manages caregiver.com and does a lot of uh, webinar, webinars and seminars all over the country and in fact, the world. So that should be very interesting as well. Uh, next slide, please. But this series wouldn't have been possible without, of course, Steve and his, his uh, expertise in doing, I think he just told us 350 of these 
Zoom conferences and webinars, which is amazing. And uh, a thank you out loud to our both of our sponsors, Hunters Woods at Trails Edge and the residents at Col Colvin Run. Um, so anyway, again, please visit our, visit our website, subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, today, we welcome Howard Glegman. He's an Urban Institute senior fellow, a journalist and author of Caring for Our Parents, a book that is a close-up personal look at our nation's dysfunctional system of delivering and paying for that kind of care. He writes a regular column for Forbes.com on both tax policy and aging issues. Today, he's going to talk about what a more perfect healthcare system for the elderly might look like while sharing some information, some advice and insights along the way. Thank you, Howard, for joining us today. Take it away. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Steve. Um, it's, it's great to see two old friends again. Um, um, you both and I have known each other for many, many years. Um, uh, thanks to Steve, to Scott, and to Sharon Cantor for inviting me uh, to this event. I'm gonna spend a few minutes today telling you a little bit about long-term care, uh, how we could fix it if we had the political will, and how you can best manage the very messy world that exists today. Uh, let me start by introducing you to a different Steve, uh, Steve and Judy Dow. I met them a few years ago when I wrote a book on long-term care called Caring for Our Parents. Steve was a contractor up in Vermont. Uh, Judy worked at a local school system. They were trying to raise their two teenage kids and care for Judy's parents and for Steve's mom, who was living with dementia. Judy called herself the tour director. And in an email she sent me one morning at two o'clock, she told me this doesn't come with a how-to manual. Like so many people in her situation, Judy eventually quit her job to care for everyone. Uh, and later they had to move Steve's mom to a care facility because Judy just couldn't do it anymore. My job now is to try to help make life better for all the Steve's and Judy's of the world. My vision is a fully integrated, well-coordinated system of healthcare and social supports that makes it possible for frail older adults to live the best lives they can. It would attend to their medical needs, but it also would help them with their daily lives. It would help them coordinate the many services that seniors need, including personal care, transportation, food or meal delivery, even appropriate and safe housing. This model could reduce falls, infections, malnutrition, and dehydration, all conditions that lead to avoidable ER visits and hospital stays. It sounds like a fantasy, but already there are models out there that do this or something like it, and I'm going to talk about a few of them uh, today. Unfortunately, they're few and far between, mostly because our system is so oriented to medical care. It doesn't pay for these coordinated non-medical services. And it certainly isn't how the system works today. Indeed, the way we care for frail older adults in the United States doesn't even deserve to be called a system at all. It's an incoherent, disorganized mess that places unnecessary, tremendous burdens on older adults and their families, like the Dows and probably like many of you. It makes people sicker, and it probably adds billions of dollars in unnecessary costs to the nation's health care bill. It builds arbitrary walls between medical treatment on one side and personal supports like help bathing and dressing on the other. It was created to respond to a now six-decade-old six government payment system that's hopelessly outdated. Before I go on, just a quick word about language. Often when I say long-term care, people either think I mean long-term care insurance or nursing homes. But the reality is this story is far bigger than either of them. So to avoid confusion, 
I'm going to call it help older adults get long-term supports and services, or LTSS. In the US today, 14 million people of all ages need LTSS. About 60% are older adults and 40% are younger people with disabilities. That number is going to double in the next 20 years. Two-thirds of those age 65 or older are going to need a high enough level of care that they would trigger long-term care insurance benefits or become eligible for Medicaid if they qualify financially. So think about that. Two-thirds of everybody listening to this webcast is going to need significant long-term care uh, at some point before they die. Men are going to require a high level of care for an average of two years, women for an average of three years. But one in seven are going to need it for five years or more, many of them with dementia. For all the attention it gets, this is not a nursing home story at all. The reality is that fewer than 10% of older adults who require supports and services get them in a nursing facility. Either all of them get them at home. That could be a house where they raise their kids, a downsized apartment, or at a senior living community of some kind. And it means that much of the burden of caring for frail elders falls to family caregivers, sometimes spouses or siblings, most often adult children. One study reported that in 2017, 41 million unpaid caregivers provided 34 billion hours of care. On average, these family members provide more than 20 hours of care a week. Think of it as another half-time job. Thus, it's no wonder that another study found that 40% of family caregivers said they had to go part-time, and nearly 20%, like Judy, had to quit her job to care for a relative. Yet a third study found that when a typical family caregiver, a woman in her 50s, leaves her job to care for an aging parent, she'll reduce her lifetime income by $300,000, including lost wages, lower social security benefits, and reduced income from a pension, a 401k, or an IRA. They quit because there's so much to figure out, so much stress, and so little help. Where can family members get information about what to do and where to go? Not for most doctors. A recent survey found that two-thirds of the doctors who were responded felt their patients would be better off if they had access to transportation to their medical appointments. Yet only 1% of those physicians felt they were responsible for helping their patients get those, uh, get those rides. Not from hospital discharge planners, who often are overworked and have little up-to-date information on local service providers. Most of the advice sites you find on the internet are pay-to-play. They're compensated by service providers for making the referrals. They're not working for you, they're working for the people trying to sell you something. You can look to private care managers for assistance to pay for their services, but they can be invaluable. Local community-based organizations can help uh, with some advice and even with some direct services. Groups like Rested for a Lifetime, it's here to help, use it. And of course, you all know Steve's uh, uh, program, uh, uh, the Pos Positive Aging Sourcebook. Uh, you certainly can use that. And a uh, shameless plug here, I'm on the board of the Jewish Council for the Aging of Greater Washington. Uh, despite our name, we serve people of all religions and ethnicities, and we have a helpline that can give you advice on the best service providers and valuable government services that are available to you. We have an adult day program for people with early stage dementia. We can help with transportation and we give advice about Medicare. If you need assistance, call JCA at 240-290-3311 or 703-652-1515 or send an email to seniorhelpline at accessjca.org. But programs like ours are rare. 
Most of the time, family members must navigate the maze of long-term care on their own. How can we change it? It's gonna require profound rethinking about the way we deliver and pay for long-term supports and services. But we can learn from some models that already do it well. I'm gonna show you a couple of examples today. Uh, first one is the program for all-inclusive care for the elderly, known as the PACE program. These programs have been around for decades. They're for people who are duly eligible for both Medicaid and Medicare. Some provide adult day uh, programs combined with primary medical care and a host of services aimed at helping people stay in their homes. It can be everything from fixing the air conditioning to flea treatments for pets. There are about 150 PACE programs in 32 states and they serve about 70,000 participants. They've got great potential and some states have embraced them. Unfortunately, there are very few in this area. In Northern Virginia, there's only one in Alexandria. There's a new one in DC and Maryland has only one, but it's in Baltimore City. Maryland's an interesting example of how this program could be used, but is it? There's 16,000 people eligible to, to, to participate in Maryland PACE, but the program serves only 130 participants. Another example is Medicare Advantage. More than half of Medicare enrollees are now in Medicare Advantage managed care plans, and many of you probably are. The government pays these plans a fixed amount of money each month to care for their members. They're supposed to coordinate all their medical care within the network. About a quarter of the plans now offer special supplemental benefits uh, to people with chronic conditions. This may include meal deliveries, some modest home modifications, adult day programs, or transportation. And of course, it's all combined with the plan's standard medical care. Sometimes uh, we call this long-term care light, but it's a relatively new model. It's growing, but because of the way plans are paid by Medicare, the benefits are very modest, uh, valued at only 30 to $50 a month. Another model are special needs plans. Uh, these are a form of Medicare Advantage plan, but for participants with a high level of need. Like PACE, they provide a comprehensive suite of managed, uh, managed medical care plus social supports. Uh, they're all aimed at improving the overall care of frail older adults and helping them stay at home. Like PACE and MA, they get a fixed amount of money each month uh, to care for each participant. There are about a thousand special needs plans serving about three and a half million people around the US. But again, not a huge number of them around here and many of them are limited to, to those, those dual eligibles, those people who are eligible just for uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Research shows the quality of these services is highly variable, but the best plans provide exactly the kind of fully coordinated care we should be aiming for. We know the PACE programs and the best special needs plans achieve the goals of improving the quality of life of participants and reducing medical costs, mostly by reducing those emergency room visits and hospital stays. There's another model out there that's worth mentioning, and these are some new models for comprehensive care of dementia patients. There are about a half a dozen of these experimental programs around the, around the United States. Most of them are designed by academic medical centers or big health systems. They're still in the demonstration phase, but most use advanced practice nurses, social workers, therapists, and pharmacists to help build and manage care plans for people with dementia and their families. For now, they're being funded mostly through philanthropy and research grants. So we don't know yet uh, how they're going to benefit people with dementia and whether they can be financially self-sustainable. They're an experiment worth watching. Finally, there's hospice, the fully integrated care model for people at the end of life. Hospices uses physicians, nurses, social workers, chaplains, and volunteers to build a fully integrated care team, exactly what I dream about. 
like MA and PACE, they're, they're paid a fixed daily uh, rate by Medicare, and it works for patients and their families, and it saves the health system hundreds of millions of dollars. Unfortunately, of course, participation is limited to those with an expectation of six months or less to live. You can't get this care unless you're dying. And the question, of course, is why? All these models show the opportunities we have to provide well-coordinated holistic care to frail older adults. But for this concept to truly benefit most of them, we need to fix Medicare and Medicaid financing systems that pay for them. We need to break the barriers that allow Medicare to pay for healthcare of older adults, but not the supportive services they need. We need to rethink the way we deliver care to old, older adults and acknowledge that supports often are far more beneficial than another pill or an operation. We need to create a public insurance program for, for middle-income people to help them uh, get off of Medicaid, but still provide them with the care they need and deserve in old age. But let's face it, we've barely done any of these things. So I'm gonna switch gears and take the last few minutes before we go to questions to talk about how you can manage the system that we do have. It's not easy, but you can do it. An easy way to remember what to do is to think about what I call the COP strategy, communicate, organize, and plan. The most important thing to remember about this strategy is you need to begin implementing it as soon as possible. Please don't wait for the inevitable healthcare crisis before you start thinking about long-term care needs. The sooner you begin, the more control you'll have over what's gonna be a difficult situation. I'm sure some of you already are getting ahead of the curve, and if you are, congratulations. You've given yourself a chance to make the system work for you, not against you. If you haven't started, here are some things to think about. Think about planning. Uh, it's probably the first thing to do. And often when I talk to consumer groups, uh, I'll hear from somebody, usually a guy, that their plan for needing care in old age is to just shoot themselves. Trust me, that's not a plan. So what should you do? Make a financial plan. How will you plan, how will you plan to pay for a year or two of long-term care, or perhaps 10 years of care? How much money are you gonna need? A nursing home in this area is gonna cost you $500 a day or more. A home care aid hired through an agency is gonna cost you 30 to $35 an hour and often more. So where's the money gonna come from? Savings and investment, insurance, home equity, all can be part of your strategy. But whatever the mix, make a plan, make it early and stick with it. Make adjustments along the way, of course, but keep building that nest egg. If you can't do it yourself, get help from a financial planner or an advisor. Trust me, having money in old age doesn't solve every problem, far from it, but it sure makes things easier. You also need to do advanced care planning. It means appointing someone as your financial representative. Make a living will that tells doctors what kind of care you need if you can't speak for yourself. Designate someone as your medical power of attorney or healthcare proxy. I can't stress enough how important it is to have someone with the legal authority to speak for you if you cannot speak for yourself. I'll tell you a personal story. When my mother was dying of cancer some years ago, uh, she was at a local hospital she had had a living will and she made it very clear she did not want uh, aggressive medical treatment at the end of her life. Uh, mostly uh, the staff and the doctors respected that, but there was one physician who, when he rounded every morning, tried to get her to change her mind and he was driving my mother nuts. I called him and I said, cut it out. Had I not had a medical power of attorney, he could have hung the phone up on me. He could have completely ignored me. 
but because I did have a healthcare proxy, he had to listen. And he left my mother alone and she died peacefully the way she would have wanted. Keep in mind, these documents are not the Ten Commandments. They're not cast in stone. Your circumstances are likely to change over the years. And if they do, change your advanced directives. And the other thing to remember is don't stash these in a safe deposit box. Your primary care doctor should have them. So should your local hospital. When it comes to organizing, a lot of this has to do with families. If you have siblings, start to think about who's going to be primarily responsible for caring for mom. Think about where she'll live if she can no longer stay at home or how to get her care if she wants to stay at home. These have to be shared decisions as much as possible, as much as, as, as mom or dad can manage. It never works to tell mom she's going to move. If you're thinking about a senior community, let her make the decision about which one to the best that she can. You'll sometimes hear the phrase parenting your parents. It's the worst possible advice. You're always gonna be their children and they're always gonna be your parents. They have agency, they deserve your respect, listen to them. As you are aging, talk to your family and friends about how you wanna be cared for. Similarly, if you're an adult child, talk to your parents about what they want. If you're one of several siblings, who's gonna be responsible for caring for mom? Will she move to be close to your sister in Chicago or stay here to be near you? I know it's hard, but talk about money too. What can you realistically afford? Where are the bank and brokerage accounts? Who's gonna manage your mom's checkbook if she can't? There inevitably are gonna be conflicts, but better to have them before the crisis than in the middle of the crisis. Talk them out, work through it, you will. Finally, when the time comes, don't try to do this alone, ask for help. It might not be easy to find in our disorganized system of care, but with work, you can find it. And remember, you can do this. Thanks very much for listening and I'm happy to answer any questions you've got. Hey, well, we've got a, we got a few questions that are uh, popped in here and uh, I, I knew that this was gonna be the, uh, the case here. A few things that they would, uh, attendees would like to you to repeat. Um, could you uh, please repeat the two phone numbers? Could you place the two and important phone numbers. And, and I was thinking the two things, I don't recall you mentioning phone numbers, but the two programs that I recall was uh, PACE, which I, I put a PACE finder in chat there, and then the Jewish Council for the Aging, and I put their website in there. But um, they also asked, what's the name of the University Hospital-based Comprehensive Dementia program. Okay, so let me take it one at a time. For, for, for JCA again, and I'll, I'll put this in the chat, but for JCA again, the phone numbers are 240-290-3311 or 703-652-1515. And the email is seniorhelpline, all one word, at accessjca.org. And I got uh, that for, in there. I, I already dropped it in there for you. Great, thank you. Uh, the, the university that's doing a dementia care model is, unfortunately, is UCLA. Could not be farther away from this area. Um, but it is one of, of about a half a dozen programs that are, that are just starting out. They're interesting experiments. And again, we'll, we'll watch them and see whether or not they work. Yeah. And, and oftentimes, I'm dropping that link into chat as well, because oftentimes, if you're interested in this program, even if it's not in your region, you can reach out to them and a lot of times they know where other programs are being 
uh, pioneered because everybody's going to UCLA to find out how they did it. Right. Um, okay, so I think we got those two items covered. Um, it looks like in here, um, oh, come on here, where are we at here? Uh, Louis Tenenbaum says, I can't agree more. Howard, it, the need for a comprehensive management system and uh, he shares an interesting link in there for everybody to check out. Esther Greenhouse, boy, we've got some real thought leaders in the audience today. She's got her enabling uh, by design uh, information that she shared. And then Margie says, I find that if somebody has gotten into their 50s without a significant nest egg or a plan to pay for care needs in their senior years, they're too embarrassed to ask for help. Uh, I, they had similar conversations, Margie. I have met many people who are living on social security income alone and no savings to speak of. Many also don't have a power of attorney of anybody in their life and to serve this role. We need a safety net and ways to help these people. Um, not sure if that's something that you'd like to comment on, uh, Howard. Sure, so you know we're all procrastinators. Um, you know, when you when you think about saving for old age, you probably ought to be starting in your 30s and 40s. But when you're in your 30s and 40s, what are you thinking about? Well, you're thinking about buying a house or buying a car, or you've just had kids and you're thinking about saving for their college. Something always comes up. And nobody wants to think about the concept of, of being frail and sick in old age. But as I said, two thirds of us are gonna be. You know, some of us are going to hit, get hit by the, the proverbial bus. Some of us are going to get a heart attack and drop dead. But most of us are going to live an extended old age. And for much of that period or some of that period, as I said, on average, if you're, if you're a guy, a couple of years, if you're a woman, three years, you're going to need uh, long-term care. And it's going to cost a lot of money. And there's only going to be two options, really three options. One option is Medicaid, which is a safety net. It's not great but it's what we got, it's better than nothing. One option is you're gonna get no help at all and that's gonna be pretty bad. When I wrote that book, one of the most troubling conversations I had was with an EMT, emergency medical technician, who told me stories about the runs he would take uh, in DC to some of the, we all know the, the row houses uh, in, in middle-income neighborhoods, now gentrified, but middle-income neighborhoods, Many of them, uh, uh, people were widows living alone in those houses. And the EMT was telling me about the calls he'd get because the postal workers smelled something bad when they're delivering the mail. And what they found was a woman who died there three days ago, alone with no help. So you're either gonna be on Medicaid, you're gonna be that woman, or you're gonna be somebody who's got the resources to be able to at least begin to take care of yourself. That's the case. Howard, our, our last speaker was Dr. Joanne Lynn. I know you know her. Really well. Uh, but she, she spoke about uh, <clears throat> getting behind a house bill that would uh, provide a long-term care insurance benefit, a catastrophic uh, insurance benefit. Um, and I think it had no co-sponsors. Uh, it's just out there. It hasn't gotten a hearing. And you and I have been through this for years, but is is it just a pipe dream to think that ever that the Congress would ever consider doing this? So this bill is modeled actually on an idea that a, a, a group that I was involved with came up with about five years ago. 
And the idea is it would be a, a public insurance program, uh, a little bit like Medicare and Social Security or public insurance programs. But this would be for catastrophic long-term care benefit. The idea was that you would be responsible for paying for the first couple of years of care. And you could do that with home equity or insurance or savings or whatever you had. And then after that, if you needed care for an extended period of time, this government catastrophic program would take effect. We did an analysis at the Urban Institute, uh, which showed that if you offered people $100 a day benefit for life after those two years, it could be done with a, uh, uh, an additional payroll tax of six tenths of 1%. Yeah. So for a middle income worker, somebody making $60,000 a year, that's $350 a year. That's, that's all it would cost is an additional $350 a year in payroll tax. And they would have the security of this insurance program. Um, as Joanne mentioned, uh, this was introduced uh, a, a couple of years ago by a congressman who has since left Congress. And they're looking around for another co-sponsor for the bill. In the current environment, is Congress gonna do anything about this or frankly, anything else? No, it isn't. But let me give you the good news. There are a number of states that are already thinking about similar kinds of programs. Washington state has already enacted a public long-term care insurance program. It's actually gonna start taking effect next month when they're gonna start collecting the payroll tax. And in a couple of years, they'll provide the benefit. Now the benefit is different than what we proposed. This is a front-end benefit. So what it says is as soon as you're eligible, the state will provide $36,500 or $100 a day uh, in support for your long-term care needs. After that, you're on your own. I don't love that model. I think it's better that people are responsible for their first months of care, or first years of care, and then the government helps people with the, with the true catastrophic need. But nonetheless, Washington State's done it. California is in the midst of uh, uh, a study looking at this by the end of the year. They're going to have a recommendation. Minnesota is looking at a number of different proposals. Illinois is looking at a proposal. So I think what we can expect is over the next few years anyway, this is something that's going to come from the states. Uh, I will say that Maryland and Virginia and D.C. are way, way, way behind the curve on this. Um, so for those of you living in the DMV, nag your state representatives and your, gov well, your governors and your whoever else to get them interested and let them know that you know, whatever they think, their states are, are lagging far behind in thinking about uh, long-term care. Good answer. And one more from me uh, question. I, there, one of the reasons we exist is to try to publicize a lot of the programs and benefits programs that already exist in Fairfax County, of which there are many. I think Montgomery County is quite similar. But what we, what we found in surveys and such of older adults here and rest, people don't know about these things at all, right. whether it's a rides program or meals or whatever. Um, do you think it's, or is it, a, I mean, we're a nonprofit and we're doing what we can, but is it a role for government to, I mean, this has been going on for, for a long time. There's a, it's the reason benefits checkup exists. There, there, there's just very little um, education out there about the fact that there are government programs that will help with long-term services and supports, but not for everybody, a lot of them for low income, but they do exist, and, but most people are ignorant about them. No, that's right. First of all, I, I saw there was one question that came through, which was, would $100 a day make any difference in a public insurance program since nursing homes cost so much? Remember what I said, 95% of people who are getting long-term care are getting it at home, not in a nursing home. 
So if you're at home, $100 a day is going to pay for three hours of home care. That's, that's not nothing. That may yeah. not be enough, but it's a good start. If you're in a nursing home, is $100 a day going to make much difference? Probably isn't. Scott, to your question, uh, people don't know about these programs, uh, and they should know more. Um, what's out there to show them? I didn't mention it, but there are the AAAs, the Area Agencies on Aging, which are available. There are the villages. There are community-based organizations like JCA and others. It requires people to be a little bit proactive. You, you have to take the trouble to go look. Um, you know, again, in my perfect world, if you got a, uh, a diagnosis of a chronic condition, your doctor would say, Scott, you've got this chronic condition. Here's what you could do to get the supports that you need. Right. That's my perfect world. We don't have that. <laughs> so so you, you need to be willing to do it. Now, the question of what else the government should do, uh, there's an interesting debate about whether the government should support villages or not. I take the position, which is somewhat controversial among the village world, that it should not. And the reason is because what I love about villages is they are community-based and they're, they're developed by people in the community for the community. If you're going to get government money, you're going to end up with all kinds of rules and regulations and restrictions and limitations and all the rest of it, as you know, from your old day job. Um, and, and it's going to constrain the ability of the villages to be flexible, which is one of the great benefits they have. So while it would be nice for the villages to have some extra money, I know they can all use it. Um, uh, remember that if you get if you take government money, it's going to come with strings, and that may not be worth it. Good question. Good answer. All right, um, uh, Howard uh, Deb uh, asks: Can you share from your book one of the inspiring stories of a family who found solutions to an urgent healthcare crisis? So I wasn't really looking at healthcare. I was really looking at long-term care. And there are a number of families that were able to find solutions. Um, and, and, and mostly because the families pulled together. Um, I wrote about a woman um, who was in her 90s, who was living in a, a senior living community, actually in this area. Um, and she was wonderful, just fabulous woman. And she had a number of great advantages. One of them was she was living in a terrific place. I guess I'm not gonna plug it, but, but it was really just an excellent place providing really great care. The, the aides were incredibly helpful. They all knew her, uh, they all worked with her, but her family also pulled together. Her stepdaughter, not even her, 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 her natural daughter, her stepdaughter uh, took an enormous uh, uh, role in, in taking care of her. She had a nephew who's a funny guy. He didn't live here, but he came to visit a lot. And he, he, he told me, uh, actually he told her while I was sitting there listening, you know, I don't want to come to the funeral. Don't invite me to your funeral. I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, but of course she died and, and he did come to the funeral. Uh, she had friends, number of friends who were able to support her. And, and those are the stories that work. And that's why the village works. That's why I, I believe very strongly that faith communities can provide a lot of help. So there are stories out there where people have a successful, you know, end of life uh, and successful period of time, you know, in old age where they're not dying, but they just need help. But almost always it's because they have families and friends who chip in and support them. It's not because uh, they're getting support from government programs or because 
as I've been arguing, they're getting support from the healthcare system because they're really not. Yeah, um, the, I, I dropped into chat a discussion that we had recently called Building Your Personal Village. And uh, that's sort of the, that we can join JCA, we can join villages, but creating a very intentional inventory of your personal support network and having conversations and studying it to see where the weaknesses are um, is really, you know, one of the only solutions that I find out there for affordability. Um, so uh, you, you, you know more people than you think. Um, it really is a matter of being intentional about it. Uh, uh, my synagogue, which is in DC, um, has a helping hands program um, where we have volunteers who deliver meals, provide rides, uh, just make friendly phone calls. And this isn't just for older adults. This is for, for example, young families who just had a baby. Um, and it's a great way for people in, in, in my faith community to not only help one another, but get to know one another. It helps build a community. Um, and, you know, there are, I know a, a lot of other faith communities around that do the same thing. Uh, there are all kinds of social networks that do it. You know, your book group can do it. Um, you know, lots of ways that this can happen, but it requires a certain amount, you're right, Steve, it requires a certain amount of intentionality. You can't just wait for it to happen. You've got to think about it. Yeah, I, I compare it to many of us work in jobs and we would never imagine either working in our job or uh, running our business without a CRM system or a system where you manage your vendors and your employees. But when it comes to our personal network and our personal village, we kind of do it a little bit more casually and we don't really look at the resources that we have there right in front of you. And, and faith-based organizations are absolutely amazing. I was at a church yesterday that uh, has tremendous resources and members that really want to help other members of the church. So uh, that's great. Okay, we, I've got a long uh, question comment here, and I'm going to try to do my best. Uh, but first off, they say such an amazing information. When you explain caregivers lose as much as $300,000 in their life because of having to stop working or work part time. Can you talk about caregivers not having any money or savings for retirement? Um, you talked about a financial plan, but yeah, it's a double whammy, isn't it, Howard? Is is that we're having to quit our jobs to take care of our parents, but then that's impacting our um, senior living. Exactly. What 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 it does is it it's going to create another generation of people going on to Medicaid. Uh, I didn't say it in the in the presentation, but many of those people who quit their jobs are low income workers. Uh, they're the people who are most at risk. And those are the ones who, who, who lose any chance of being able to help themselves. You know, one of the things that happens, you know, I, I think everybody on this webinar knows this, but particularly for women, you know, again, this is an example of a woman in her 50s. If you quit a good job in your 50s, you may get another job after mom dies, but it's never going to be as good as the one you left. Um, so you may go back to work, but you're, gonna, you're never going to make the money that you, you, you were making. Um, 
And that's another whole story. It's a story of ageism. And, and we can talk about that too, if you like, but um, it's, it's the reality. So, so what happens is people are making these enormous sacrifices uh, to care for their parents. And, and look, I mean, uh, my own view was I made some sacrifices to care for my parents. I, I wouldn't have done anything else. They deserved it. They took care of me for 18 years. I, I had an obligation to take care of them and I wanted to take care of them. And that's, I think, what most people, how most people feel. But you're going to pay a price, not just a financial price, but an emotional price. This is emotionally very difficult and a physical price. You know, one of the things we don't do is we don't do anything to teach family caregivers how to provide the support they need to provide. So what happens? You have a wife who is trying to help her husband transfer from a bed to a chair and she blows out her back. So now you have two people who need help. Um, if we took the time to train her in how to do a transfer, we probably could have avoided that. But we don't because nobody thinks about it. Nobody thinks it's important. We, I'm not going to beat on hospital discharge planners because they are overworked. But what happens? You know, somebody's been in a hospital bed for a week. They're very debilitated. They don't want to go to a nursing home. They want to go home. Their spouse thinks I can take care of them, but they have no idea how. So they're, they're, they're providing care with great love and no skill. And the outcome is often not very good. Yeah. So one of the things I argue with hospitals about all the time is take the time to train them because you don't want them coming back. You know, if, if, if you have a round trip, you have a, a patient who's discharged and comes back within 30 days, the hospital is going to pay a penalty. So do what you can to prevent that. And one thing you can do is have a little training program. One thing I, I suggest to hospitals, how many times you go into somebody's hospital room and the TV is on and it's running some stupid rerun from 1960s television. Instead of that, how about a training video in how to care for somebody who has just had a surgery, how to change or do, do wound care, how to know if something's going wrong, right? It's not hard. Some hospitals actually do it but not enough. Yeah, man, uh, we got a entrepreneurial opportunity. We got a lot of entrepreneurs in the audience. So totally. that could be a great partnership with some of you and, and your local hospital. But the, uh, okay, um, I'm going to make a comment on this, uh, on, on this, this comment that I'm going to read here from Catherine, but I'd love your feedback on this too. And it says, are there any special resources for dementia, Alzheimer's in particular? I get calls regularly from children with parents with these conditions who cannot afford a care setting at $12,000 a month. This is going to be a huge problem for our country. I want to share this quick story briefly. I, I, I want Howard to be speaking, but, but for purposes of how critical this is, I was a part of a panel, an online discussion, and there was a woman who was in the audience, and when it came time for Q&A, she talked about how in her senior living community, which is an affordable senior living community, in the evenings, uh, there's people wandering the halls making noise that have dementia. And she was working with Adult Protective Services, with the manager of the apartment building, with the county, anybody would listen. How can I get these people kicked out of this building? They're disrupting us. It's not safe, this, that, and the other. And after some dialogue, I realized, wait a second, this is an affordable senior living community. 
Nobody in that building can afford care other than adult daycare during the day to potentially care for them with dementia. And so what we started having a dialogue with this woman who is currently active and independent is instead of trying to get the residents kicked out, what if the active independent residents came together and said, we need to help each other because this could be us someday and we can't afford the options that are out there. Um, but, but do you have any solutions for this? You know, the traditional memory care community is 10 grand at least. And at least. Uh, what are families gonna do? At least it's, it's, I mean, memory care is a huge, huge issue. It is gonna become a bigger issue. You know, you may have read recently about some new drugs that are coming online don't count on them to solve this problem. They're not going to solve this problem. There are a couple of things to think about. One of them is one of my favorite organizations is a group called the Dementia Action Alliance, which has some wonderful ideas run by a, 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 a woman. She's re recently moved, but was a local woman and then Karen Love, um, who some of you may know. And Steve, you could put DAA in yep, there. I'm getting it in there. Yes, they have some fabulous ideas on what to do. The, 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 the lesson is that many people with dementia who are, who are suffering from agitation and confusion, that's not inevitable. With, with, with good care, with good support, much of that can be addressed. It takes somebody to do it. You know, you're right, people can support one another and that makes a big difference. But the people giving the support need some sort of basic training and how to do it. You can't make this up because if you do, you can make some bad mistakes and make things a lot worse. But with some help you can, and some guidance, you can actually do this. One could imagine <coughs> bringing in a social worker um, or somebody with, with, with other experience in supporting people with dementia. Because again, the support here isn't medical support. The support is social support. I'll tell you a quick story. I'm gonna just have something to drink here first. A wonderful story I heard years ago from an operator of a nursing home. They had a, uh, they had a resident who had dementia, who every evening <coughs> at like four or five o'clock in the evening would get very agitated. And you know, there's this cliche about sundowning. Well, sundowning isn't necessarily a thing. What this nursing home did was they contacted the, the resident's son and they explained the situation and said, what, how can you help us with this? What do you know? And they told him the story. They said, our father was an old time traveling salesman. Some of you may remember, maybe old enough to remember traveling salesman. And every evening at five o'clock, he would call his wife wherever he was and talk to her. Well, now his wife is dead. He is in this retirement community and it's five o'clock and he doesn't exactly even know why, but he's really agitated. So the nursing home worked out a system where at five o'clock every afternoon, somebody called him and talked to him for a few minutes. And lo and behold, his agitation went away. Um, those are the kinds of little things that with, with, with you know, not a lot of hard work can be fixed. Um, so there are ways to address this, but bottom line, caring for somebody with dementia, particularly as dementia begins to advance, is very complicated and very expensive, and we have no system to, to deal with it. Uh, 
talk about people staying at home. With dementia, it can become very difficult and in fact become impossible because people can become a danger to themselves. Um, so uh, it, it's the people, uh, long-term care insurance uh, actuaries tell me that half of long-term care insurance claims are people with dementia. It's a big, big deal. And fixing it is a big, big problem. And we're not making any effort to do it. Going back again to my dream, imagine that you go to your primary care doctor, you, you take the, the, the cognitive test, the doctor tells you, you know, that you have early stage uh, memory loss, early stage dementia. Today, what most likely is gonna happen, the doctor is gonna say, I'm sorry to tell you this, get your life in order, there's nothing you can do. That's the story I hear over and over and over again from, from, from patients and from physicians, honestly. Imagine a different world where the patient said, this test suggests that you've got early stage memory loss. Here's what you can do. You don't need to put your life in order because you still can live a, 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 a pretty good life for a while. Um, and here are some things you can do to, to make your life better. And here to your family are some, some advice for how you can provide care to this person. It's gonna be maybe difficult, but you can do it. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot we could do and we're not doing very much of it at all. Howard, there's a, there's a, in the chat, there's something from Terry Bond about nursing homes and um, you know the fact that we really need honest critiques of facilities and care. And I know it, that's a, it's a big topic, but maybe you could share some information on, on what you think makes a good nursing home and, and why it works well and, you know, and, and how that industry can, uh, well, we know that the pandemic has really hit them hard, both image-wise and of course, all the deaths that happened there. Uh, and certainly as a baby boomer myself, it's one of the last places I'd ever wanna be. Um, so but what can facilities do to, to work better and, 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 and become part of this, this more integrated system? So nursing homes are about staff, staff, and staff. You know, the, there's, a, there's a cliche in the business, you know, about buying the lobby. So, you know, the adult children, you know, feel guilty about mom going into the nursing home anyway, but they go into a place and the lobby's beautiful. It's got wood paneling and flowers and all the rest of it. And they think this must be a good place. Forget it. It's about the staff. If the staff cares, if the staff has the time, if the staff has the, the flexibility, they can be great. I'm sure some of you know about the greenhouse model. Most people, when they think about greenhouses, focus on the physical location, you know, the fact that it's a small home and there's a central kitchen and all that. That's all important. But what's really important is the staffing model. And I know you said you're going to have Bill Thomas on. Bill Thomas was the founder of these. Um, I think Bill would probably tell you it's about the staff. And one of the things that the greenhouse did was it broke down the traditional hierarchical model of nursing homes, which came from the hierarchical model of hospitals. And the idea was the director of nursing knew everything and the aides knew nothing. And the aides were completely fungible. And if an aide wasn't happy, we'll get rid of her and get another one. The reality is that nobody knows more about the status of the residents than the aides. And, and if you create an environment where the aides are given the opportunity to provide feedback, 
to the senior staff and create an environment where the aides and the residents actually get to know each other and they know their names. And you create an environment where the aide doesn't just go into a patient's room at eight o'clock in the morning and say, Mrs. Jones, you're getting your bath now, even if Mrs. Jones doesn't want a bath. In, in, in that new environment, nursing homes are not gonna be the terrible, scary place that people think they are now. There's a lot of issues with nursing homes, there's no question. I think they're a real inflection point. Uh, a lot of them are old, they need to be recapitalized. There's not money to do it. Everybody understands about the staffing shortage. It's a, it's a huge, huge problem. It was a problem before COVID, it's a bigger problem now. Nursing homes are closing wings because they don't have the staff. Uh, the, the, there's an awful lot that has to be done. It's gonna take money. A lot of uh, uh, small faith-based nursing homes are closing. They're either going out of business or they're getting sold to for-profit chains. Another thing to keep in mind is, you know, it's, it's easy to beat up on the, the you know, private equity uh, owners of nursing homes. The reality is very few nursing homes are owned by big private equity companies. It's a myth. 20 years ago, uh, uh, Carlisle Group bought Manor Care. They got murdered financially. It was a disaster. They sold it. And since then, big private equity firms don't want to be in the nursing home business. They can make a lot more money in the home care and hospice business or buying medical practices than they can be in the nursing home business. And actually, Manor Care is now a nonprofit. Pro yeah. <laughs> exactly. After it went through, I think, three owners. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, so I think the, the lesson here is focus on good ownership, focus on good staffing, and quickly for consumers, Medicare needs and Medicaid needs to provide better information for consumers so that they can know the difference between a good nursing home and a bad nursing home. They have nursing home compare which is a very useful tool for determining safety in nursing homes. You want to count the number of falls, you want to count the number of infections, go to Nursing Home Compare, it'll tell you. But it's not going to tell you if it's a good nursing home or not. For that, you need better information about staffing. You need better information about quality of life, which you're only going to get from residents. And as a consumer, you need to go, you need to spend time, you need to talk to the staff, you need to talk to the residents, you need to do it without the, the marketing person standing around. I'm sorry if there are marketing people on the call. You, you need to see it for yourself and you need to get a feeling for yourself about whether it's really gonna work for your mom. It's the only way to do it. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, Question popped in here, prostate cancer and other medical tests, changes with tests, recent articles and news stories about aggressive medical treatments and surgery treatments. Uh, okay, they mention especially men, uh, do you have any comment? Okay, they mention especially men and prostate cancer, the treatments have changed so much, but the primary care doctors and other staff do not know about the changing care plans. Do you have any comments or information about these life changes in the care plans? Yeah, so this is this is a, a prostate cancer is a really interesting example of this. So we have gone from uh, where the standard a time where the standard care was aggressive surgery or aggressive radiation or both to 
we're, we're getting very close to a model where the standard of care is watchful waiting for many patients. Uh, but you're right, primary care docs, you know, don't, they can't possibly keep up with all the changes that occur in specialties. We are, everybody knows, we're in an era of incredibly highly specialized medicine. You know, I often joke that, you know, not only do we have orthopedists, but we have orthopedists that only do knees. And now we're getting to the point where we have orthopedists who only do left knees. And, and everything is so highly specialized. And there are hundreds and hundreds of medical journal articles all the time. And you can't expect your primary care doctor to keep up with all of it. It's just not possible. But they should know enough about enough so that they can refer you to a, to a specialist who can really help you with this. Um, you know, how do you know if even your specialist is keeping up with the, the uh, most advanced treatment options? You don't. Uh, you know, I'll go back to dementia again. This is going to be, a, over the next couple of years, this is going to be an extraordinary story. So the FDA has approved two drugs that have some potential to slow uh, the progression of early stage Alzheimer's, and Alzheimer's only, not any other dementia. We don't really know how well they work. We don't know a lot about the side effects, although some of the reported side effects are potentially very scary. We're gonna have people who are gonna to go to their primary care physician who say, I want this drug right now. And the primary care physicians are not gonna know what to do. And, and this is gonna be a very, oh, and by the way, the drug's gonna cost $26,000 a year. <laughs> um, and, and what else could you do with $26,000 a year in terms of providing home care, or home modifications or other social supports that people need. But this is gonna be a very interesting story to follow over the next few years. Is Medicare gonna pay for this and under what conditions? And if it doesn't and you have to pay for it, what's it really mean? And, and getting good advice about it is gonna be very hard. Yeah, and, and folks that are in the audience and that they're, you're living through real life experiences now, like maybe trying to find a nursing home, one of the, one of the things that I always say is, is that it's got to be, if you as a loved one needs to, ideally, needs to be convenient and easy for you to visit on a regular basis. Think of it like dropping your kid off at school. You don't just drop them off. You join the PTA. You get to know the teachers. You become part of that community. And one of the best ways to get good care is becoming part of a community or paying somebody like an aging life care manager to be part of that community for you. I um, often tell people, Steve, bring cookies. Exactly. When you, when you visit mom, bring cookies. The staff will love you for it. Um, we, we are only now learning about one of the terrible effects of COVID, which was the lockdown and the fact that families couldn't visit and what that social isolation meant for uh, those residents. Many, many residents died, not of COVID, but they died of loneliness. Yep. And, and we're starting to learn about that. And, and I think a lesson is, you know, be there for your family, you know, just be there as much as you can. Yep, absolutely. And, and it's also shined new perspective on aging in place is, is that if you can be lonely and isolated in a building with hundreds of people in it, uh, it's a lot easier to be lonely and isolated if you're alone in your home and your life is car dependent. I got to tell you, one of the hardest places to, to be a frail older adult is a suburban cul-de-sac. 
yeah you know uh, you know staying in that house where you raise the kids and you've been living there for 40 years but you don't know any of your neighbors because they've all moved out you've got young families there and they don't know you and you don't know them you don't have transportation it is terribly lonely and, and people uh, who say you know everybody should age in place there shouldn't be any nursing homes there shouldn't be you know wrong you know people need that yeah you just need to get to the right place um someone says i hope more attention is directed to such a program on you know making connections i do volunteer with the maryland department of aging as a friendly visitor and uh again for the folks in the audience always contact your state department on aging always contact the area agency on aging they can unlock some programs that you may or may not have been familiar with or they can help you get on waiting lists or access those and and this person asks is there a buddy system in place and this is what i would say to you and everybody on that is is that there are buddy systems in place like the one that you volunteer for but honestly building your personal village is creating that buddy system that has close proximity to you because if you can create a buddy system with the three families on your street in the cul-de-sac there all of a sudden it makes that a more welcoming environment and easier for you or your loved one to age in place um and so it's it can be hard work because and this stuff just doesn't drop out of the sky so uh uh, but the benefit is, is, is that you're a lot of times you're not writing a check for these types of things. Right, exactly. And, you know, people say, well, you know, the villages or the, those kinds of informal supports, you know, they, they, they can't last forever. And that's right. They can't. You may get to a point where you, you need professional care. But what they can do is they can put that time off for months and months and maybe years and years. Yeah. And, and think about it like if you need in-home care and your, your loved one needs in-home care seven days a week, but if three days out of the week, you've got friends, family, folks from the church providing support, you've just saved yourself thousands of dollars, depending on the, the, that care level. Exactly, exactly. Um, wow, I looked at that. We're actually over an hour. I wanted to remind everybody that we are um, recording this. So if you have to jump off, that, that's fine. And I'm looking here at some of the chat comments, but Scott and, and, and Howard, if you want to jump in with some closing statements and if there's something we can uh, uh, riff off of, we will. Well, I, I've been just looking at the comments in the chat and there are a lot of great comments and I wish we had another hour to talk about them. Yep. I, I, I think the, 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 the closing message I have is I do have this vision for what a better system should be. I hope that people can do some advocating and, and press for this on their state level and on the federal level. Talk to your congressman, talk to your senator, talk to your state representatives. Explain to them how the system is not working and how it can be fixed. And the other thing is, you know, it's going to take time to get that new system in place until we do you're going to have to be intentional about this. You're going to have to work hard to do it yourself and think about that cop system for your, your own family. You know, plan, communicate, communicate, talk about it. It's hard stuff to talk about, but don't shy away from it because believe me, I know from personal experience, if you wait until it's too late, it's too late. No, I th thank you, Howard. I, I think 
you made so many good points and and so much good information. I it uh, it's probably overwhelming to a lot of people, uh, but I think uh, the the fact that you're pushing the idea of doing a plan is is something I wrote about in the, our local newspaper just a few months ago. So I think it's a great idea. I think the the other thing that sticks out for me is this whole concept of neighbors helping neighbors, whether it's through your church or your synagogue or whatever, is 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 what we have now. Um, you know, besides the area agencies on aging and such that can give you some some guidance and advice, but it is what we have now. And I I urge people to learn as much as they can about about this if uh, they're in this situation already or they're fast approaching it as I am and other people in their 70s are. Um, you know, certainly there's a lot of information out there. And I, I agree with Howard. I think the advocacy for this is really needed. It'd be nice if a presidential candidate would, would talk about this. It's, we've, try, we've tried over the years to get to make that happen, but it's, it's hard. It's not something that uh, it means money. It means taxes. And yeah, at this stage, it's hard to get people talking about something that would actually be useful to people, but it'd be smart to, to try to advocate for this. And again, thank you, Howard. Thank you to Steve and thank you to our sponsors and um, wish you all the best. And thank you for the audience. There's a lot of participation, a lot of good feedback. Thank you so much. All right, Steve, it's got good to see you and thank you to the audience as well. Yeah, thanks, y'all. Uh, great questions and comments. If you if you didn't get to something, feel free to just shoot me an email. I can pass them on to Scott and uh, Howard if it's something that they can assist with. But have a great weekend and uh, we'll see you all next week. We got some awesome discussions next week too. So uh, see you tomorrow or next week, sorry.